Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. You know, you are discriminated when you are young and you don't have gray hair in that part of the world. I encourage all young people, do not let anyone look down on you because you're not young. Right? Set an example, move out there and build whatever you do, do it well and do it first class, world class. And eventually they'll be forced to pay attention to you. I believe that if you are going to go into a community, you have to be there for the long term because development is not a joke. Development is not something you just get up and say, oh, I'm going to help someone and you only do it when it's convenient. And so it means that when times are tough and you have financial crises and you have all these other issues, you need to make sure that whatever intervention you are structuring or creating is one that can withstand some of those things. I'm very pleased today to introduce Sangu Dele. Sangu is the co-founder of Kinaqua, formerly known as the African Development Initiative. Kinaqua is a non-profit organization working to help provide access to clean water and sanitation in underdeveloped regions in Ghana. It invests in water and sanitation as a means of reducing poverty and improving healthcare outcomes. Sango also runs Golden Palm Investments, a holding company that invests in early stage venture and growth financing across Africa and is currently an MBA candidate at Harvard. First, I'd like to say thank you very much, Sango, for taking the time today to speak to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast and share your experience and insights. And a good place to start is tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up becoming a social entrepreneur. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for hosting this program um, and for the invitation. Very much uh, honored and humbled uh, uh, to share my story. So I, by way of introduction, I grew up in Ghana. I'm very much uh, Pan-African both in philosophy and in DNA because I am mostly Ghanaian, but I'm also part Bekinabi and Egyptian. I grew up in, in Ghana at a very interesting time where we had the civil wars in Sierra Leone and Liberia. My father was a human rights activist and a doctor, so we actually grew up with refugees from, um, from Sierra Leone and Liberia. And we also used to host torture victims in the house. I'll, I'll never forget Trouble Soa, who had been beaten to a bloody pulp um, because he was a journalist who used to write against Charles Taylor in Liberia. And the West African Media Foundation was able to, you know, arrange for his escape out of Liberia into Ghana. We hid him in the house um, and a team of 16 doctors led by my father was able to restore him to health. And eventually he was granted asylum to get out, um, to get out of the region. Uh, so, so that was the context of my upbringing. Uh, so I, I saw vividly the consequence of um, human rights violation and, and poverty and underdevelopment um, and, and, and conflict. And so that had a huge impression on me. And I think that emboldened me from a young age to be passionate about development, to be passionate about human rights. Um, so growing up in that humanitarian upbringing, um, I've always wanted to give back and I've always been involved 
in ways in which I can give back and contribute to a better society. I was involved in a lot of work to do with HIV AIDS, um, um, environmental, uh, um, sustainability, and a, a whole bunch of other projects here and there as I was in, in middle school and in secondary school. It was when I moved to the United States on a scholarship um, that I then started to have an evolution in my philosophy on how best we can aid my continent. And that evolution was partly in response to frustration with what I saw going on in the nonprofit world. And that is, I saw a massive increase in the number of charities operating in Ghana, but I didn't necessarily see the same type of impact on the ground. In addition, it seemed like we had created an ecosystem where you know, charity became the new cool thing to do, and it became almost a business of charity. Um, I thought a lot of the measures and interventions I saw were band-aid measures and were not attacking the root of the problems, were not empowering communities to be able to take charge of, of their own destinies. Um, and, and so I, I was troubled by this. So this is what then led me to get more involved in entrepreneurial issues and what led me to get more involved in, in, in business that could have social impact. Excellent. All that said, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Continue. You're, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I was saying, so, so all, all that said, um, um, as you can see, and at, apart from, from Golden Palm Investments, where we focus on, um, on early stage opportunities in the continent, I'm still very much involved, ironically, in the nonprofit world through Clean Aqua. Um, and I always get the question that, given my attack on the charity aid model, how do I reconcile those positions? Um, and, and my caveat is, generally speaking, I push for private sector-led solutions, market-based solutions to, to many of the problems we have. But I think there, are, there is a space and there are areas where there are some fundamental basic building blocks that is needed for any society to prosper. And those blocks ideally should be provided by governments. And I'm talking about clean water, I'm talking about electricity, I'm talking about roads, I'm talking about the basic infrastructure that would allow any community and any country to thrive. And in the absence of governments providing that, um, I think there is a room for um, the nonprofit sector to play a role in filling that void. My issue is with the methodology, and that's what we try to do differently with Clean Aqua where we try to make sure that whatever we do is sustainable and that the community can manage and operate it and that when we exit, they are empowered to be able to manage it. They have the funds to, to operate and maintain it. They have the technical training in case it breaks down. And you think about it holistically and, and engage the communities as partners in their own development. Right, very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about Clean Aqua and actually the scope of what you do today and how you operate? So Clean Aqua, yes, it was we co-founded it myself and my roommate at Harvard, Daryl Finkton, and we, we sat down and said, look, the charity aid method, we were frustrated with it. We said we didn't like the way it worked. We saw, you know, Daryl grew up in inner city Indianapolis. Um, and he, he, you know, he, he saw all the problems with, with that, that are associated with inner cities. 
um, education, drugs, uh, uh, single parent households, all these issues. Um, and I told him about what I saw growing up in West Africa. And we said, look, let's come together and do something that can be more sustainable, that can challenge the status quo, and that can empower local communities to be in charge of their own destinies. So at first, so, so we knew we wanted to, to focus on sus- a more sustainable way of bringing about aid. Then the issue was, what do we focus on? Immediately, the first thing that came to my mind was, look, let's do something on HIV AIDS. Let's do something on malaria. And, and you know what I found out through our research? That more children die because of lack of access to clean water and sanitation than from AIDS and malaria combined. And this was in 2007. So it blew our mind. And we said, what? We live in a world, you know, at that time in the mid-2000s, where we lose almost a billion, you know, you have a billion people who don't have access to clean water at the time, and 2.7 billion people didn't have access to sanitation, to a latrine. In fact, today as we speak, more people have a cell phone than have a latrine. It's mind-boggling. More people have cell phones than have a latrine. So we, we decided that, look, that, that we're losing too many lives. It's one of the leading causes of death, of infant mortality under age five. And so we started in one community called Ejimanti. Um They had a spring that was infested with E. coli. We went in and, boy, we had so many lessons in Ejimanti. We first went in with a team from MIT, thinking we were going to go very high-tech and put in some solar power spring cleaning systems. Um, and we went to Ejimanti and we actually saw a, a, a solar-powered spring cleaning system that was already installed by a donor who had gone in, put it there, and left. And it was broken, right? And guess what? No one in the community knows how to use solar technology. So when it was broken down, who could fix it? Right. And so the community and our engagement with the community, we we realized and learned from the community that um, any intervention necessarily has to be idiosyncratic and has to adapt to the local circumstances. So so that was our first foray into into water and sanitation. I ended up writing my award-winning thesis here at Harvard on this issue, on the value of water and sanitation in development. Um, we've stayed with Ejimante for the last five years, helped, went from not just providing clean water through borehole provision, but figuring out how to solve sanitation with 100% latrine coverage. Because if I have clean water and we are practicing open defecation, you know, it's cost 90. We're still going to have the problem of, of diarrheal and dysentery and all the water-related diseases causing an increase in infant mortality. So then the third prong of it was hygiene promotion. So we met from, from Ejimante and we got involved in other projects. We did uh, 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 microfinance, um, we, we, worked, we, we helped develop some schools, we did some, some health projects, we did projects in Ghana, Nigeria, Ethiopia, um, the Caribbean, the DR, uh, Kenya, Uganda, and, and we did projects in all these different sectors. But what happened was, after five years, in 2012, we did a review with a board, which includes uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Professor Evelyn Higginbotham. And when we did a review, we realized that we were in too many places and doing too many things. And in order to have magnified impact, we needed to focus. So that's when we did an assessment of all the issues and realized that, look, we still think the one of the most compelling issues that we need to solve today is this issue of clean water and sanitation. It's still one of the leading causes of, of, of infant mortality, um, and it's solvable. It's, it's not like we are talking about cancer or HIV AIDS 
or Ebola where we don't have a cure for. We know what the cure is. We know what the solutions are. It's just about being innovative and figuring out ways in which we can accomplish it. So we decided to focus strictly on water and sanitation. And we were initially called the African Development Initiative and we rebranded to Clean Aqua. We've set up, um, we've hired full-time staff. We've set up in Ghana. We are now in, you know, we are now in clusters. We've taken over two clusters in Ghana, um, Ayeswanu and Suhum. Um, and, and these two communities, you basically have uh, about 120 villages across the two, um, about 60,000 people. And we are basically coming up with interventions and ways in which we can solve this issue. Very interesting evolution and response to, I guess, how, how the, the projects unfolded. How, how did you get it off the ground? You know, again and again, we see young people very inspired to change things, to, to set up a social business, to, to try and, uh, you know, put together resources and people to, to make a change. How do you know, you know, when you have an idea, whether it's feasible, whether it's viable, what do you need to, to get something off the ground? What, what was, what's been your experience? So, look, the first thing we did, okay, we, had, we came up with the idea, we did our research, and we said, look, this is a big problem we have. Um, we want to, we, we, we believe in a world, and we, we imagine a world where everyone has access to clean water, uh, safe sanitation, and good hygiene. That was a grand idea. And we said, let's take this grand idea and let's, you know, implement it. How do we convert it from the idea conception into reality? The first thing you do is you build a team, right? Because you need a team to execute. So it was Daryl and myself, and we built a team. We wanted to fill in the holes. We said, look, we need people who, we need technical expertise. So we reached out to the University of Minnesota. We reached out to MIT. We reached out to Harvard Medical School, the School of Public Health, economics department, Department of African and African-American Studies, Anthropology. We built out a multidisciplinary team. That was the first step. Then we did our homework to learn as much about the area as possible. So we, we did a deep dive and we, we did, we learned, look, I, Daryl and I probably read over 300 academic papers. Right? We really, really did a deep dive to truly understand the issues and to be well-versed. Because what that does is it also helps us and when we are talking to whether it's potential donors or potential partners, they have confidence in what we are talking about because we've done our homework. We know what we are talking about. So we really, really invested time in, in, in first making sure we knew what we were talking about, building up the technical knowledge, and then building a team around that. The next step was we needed a pilot. We needed a pilot project. So what we did was we did some homework and um, reached out to the relevant officials in Ghana. We reached out to the Ministry of Water Resources. We reached out to um, local nonprofits working in the area. And we're able to identify an area of need, which was Ejimante. So next, we had, so we had a team. We had the technical knowledge we built, and we were looking for a place to do a pilot. So we figured out Ejimante through the recommendations of the ministry. Next, we said, okay, we have the technical team in place. We need implementation partners. So we knew we couldn't do it all by ourselves. So we did a lot of research there again, and we came up with WaterAid Ghana. WaterAid is a global nonprofit focused on water and sanitation. We partnered with them. Next, we partnered with a local NGO in the area 
the Equiapem Community Development Agency. And in fact, uh, uh, funny story is the project manager who was at um, um, uh, ADEP was later, we later, five years later, hired him and he's now our project manager for Clean Aqua. So it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small world that comes full circle. But we found our, our implementation partners. Once we had that partnership figured out, we then said, okay, we need to go and engage with the community. Right? You don't just get up and take an idea and think, you know, you're sitting here in the ivory tower and you can go into any community and just tell them what to do. It doesn't work that way. So we went, to the, we went and planned a visit. We applied for some grants got some grants, and we went and did our, um, what I'll call our feasibility study. So we went to the community, we met with the community, we spoke with the traditional leaders, we spoke with the elders, we spoke with the relevant stakeholders, and we told the community, look, this is the situation you have, how can we work together? Um, and so we came up with a plan with the community. Um, we obviously had to first convince them of the problem. So we, we, you know, we had a team in place, we did the water testing, going from household to household, every single household, to prove to people that, look, there's E. coli in the water, and this water is creating problems, and this is why you're having the issue of infant mortality. Um, and, and, and we learned a lot from the community there. I'll tell you a funny story, okay? We went into one of the houses, the, the little um, um, homes, and we spoke to this woman, Miss Olivia, and we told Auntie Olivia, we said, Auntie Olivia, this is the uh, test tube, we are putting in this feed, for the E. coli. If there's E. coli there, it should turn, you know, sleep with it so you produce the body warmth and it should turn yellow. So she, she did as we told as we told her. We came the next day, she pulls it out as yellow. And you know what she told us? Yeah. She, said, she said, well, how do I know any water you put that thing in won't turn yellow? And we said, wow, this is someone in the village who is now teaching us. She's exposing our experiment and letting us know that we don't have a control. You see, it was, and it was quite remarkable because people go into these villages and they don't, you know, sometimes you go in thinking, oh, I'm coming from Harvard, I'm coming from MIT, I'm coming to show them. But you end up learning a lot from them. And so you have to go with the right mindset and realize that it's a partnership. So we said, look, you are right. You are 100% right. We cannot be effective if we go about with the way in which we're doing it. Where we just So we changed the whole methodology and started going with a control test tube. And then people were able to control and test it. And then we were more effective that way because people truly bought in. So, so after we did that, the, the big hurdle obviously becomes fundraising for this. Um, as you can imagine, this was 2008 when the financial crisis occurred. And we had already committed to the community. So that's when we had to, uh, at the same time, um, uh, I was working, I was volunteering on the Obama campaign. So I took a page out of Obama's playbook, and basically we did a, a, a crowd-based um, campaign strategy where we, we started this 2010 campaign, um, and we said, look, give $20 and, and, and get nine of your friends to do a group of 10, um, and, and that way we can get 10 people given 20 bucks. So we did that. It went viral. We got a lot of friends on Facebook and elsewhere to get involved, and we were able to raise sufficient funds to start the project, applied for some grants, and the project took off. Um, you know, we went in there, uh, started it, focused on solving the issue of water provision, um, had the right partners to be able to implement. We were very, very rigorous in, our, in making sure we are constantly assessing, constantly innovating, 
uh, we don't have ego. We are not interested in, in saying this is what we've done right. We are more interested in solving the problem. So we are constantly looking for what did we do wrong? How could we improve? And um, I think our, our donors were, uh, you know, they, they, they were pleasantly surprised with our approach because we can't, when we hit you up, we don't tell you, hey, this is the great we are doing. We tell you, look, this is the good stuff we've done and this is what we mess up and this is how we are going to learn and evolve from that. So we grew from there. Today, we are now, as I mentioned, we are now in 120 communities um, with about 60,000 people and we are hoping to grow from strength. We want to help them accomplish 100%. Um, and then from there, we hope to accomplish uh, national coverage. And my, my real goal is 10 years from now, I really don't want us to exist. Um, that, and I think that's how we are different from a lot of other nonprofits. We, we, we don't want to exist. We want the problem to be solved. And either we move to a different region to solve the issue there or we do something else. But um, I, we don't want to be in the business of doing this 10 years from now because ideally, this problem should be solved. Well, it's very interesting, your innovation in terms of funding and detailed and rigorous approach to, to solving the, the problems and, and, and working with people on the ground. One or two mistakes you made that, that you think might be of interest to other people, you know, doing similar kinds of things? Oh, yes. The mistakes, we made a lot of mistakes. So one I already alluded to was um, when we went in and we immediately came up with this high-tech solution with the MIT folks and let's put in solar powered spring cleaning systems and you go on the ground and you realize that these some of these grand ideas don't work on the ground because who understands solar technology and how is it going to be sustainable so we realize that you you cannot you can offer suggestions but you have to come up with a solution in partnership with the community you can't just go go into these villages and say you know this is an idea and i'm just going to implement it and i'll tell you another thing we learned there Based on our economic analysis we did, the cost-benefit cost analysis and otherwise, we realized that the cost-effective solution was initially going to, there were some old wells and it was to rehabilitate those wells and put in a pump on top of it. Well, guess what? If we had simply based our intervention on that, we would have been in trouble because 15 years prior to our entry into Egemanity, a girl with mental health challenges fell in the well. And social mores prevented people from using the raw water. So we would have wasted our money. We would have done all the right analysis, gone in there, rehabilitated these wells, put in pumping mechanisms, and no one would touch it. It would have been a waste of money. So we had, you have to go in, you have to be on the ground, you have to work with the community, and you have to focus on what are some of the you know, idiosyncratic factors. Adapt any strategy to, to, to local customs and local issues and really work in partnership with the community. That's the only way for it to be successful. The second um, key lesson I think we've learned is, you see, I believe that if you are going to go into a community, you have to be there for the long term because development is not a joke. Development is not something, you know, you just get up and say, oh, I'm going to help someone, um, and, 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 and you only do it when it's convenient, right? And so it means that when times are tough and, and you have financial crises and you have all these other issues, you need to make sure that whatever intervention you are structuring or creating is one that can withstand some of those things. And that's where it becomes important to empower the community to be able to manage and run it. It becomes important to empower the community to, so with us, we train them, we, we set up a, a bank account we, pr we actually priced it such that the community invested in it, right? They contributed 
to, to, to the construction of latrines. They contributed to this and they pay for the water also. So that creates a way, a, a revenue stream for them to be able to take care of operation and maintenance. So when the pump breaks, we've trained pump mechanics. They have the funds in their accounts to be able to pay for, uh, to buy a new pump. And, and, and it's more sustainable that way. So those will be the two key um, uh, pieces of advice I'll give. One is making sure you adapt to local circumstances. And the second I'll say is, um, you know, making sure that you, re you, you create a sustainable framework for managing the infrastructure going forward. Oh, that's very interesting. Were there some moments where you questioned whether you know it was going to work out, whether it was going to succeed, and 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 how do you keep going when things are difficult? Oh yes, we. Uh, in fact, we look. We had a, a situation where there were some serious governance challenges. Okay, the committee we had put in place, which the community elected on their own, um, the grandson of the chief uh, started creating problems. He was locking up um, um, the water infrastructure we put in place. Um, he was misbehaving and creating problems. And because his grandfather was a chief, he had a lot of power in the community and, and couldn't be stopped. So there were some of these issues that came up that created lots of problems for us. Um, but again, like I said, once you make a commitment uh, to a community, we believe that you have to stick it through until your job is done. You don't, otherwise, don't get involved. Right, because because you end up creating more problems. You create more harm than good. It's not every, um, not all good ideas, as well intentioned as they are. Not all good ideas are the right ideas. You know, I always tell people. Uh, uh, someone sent me a note and said, um, "Oh, you know, they wanted to send some clothes to the people in Egemante where we are working." And I said, "This sounds like a great idea. You want to do a, 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 a you know, a, a fund. You know, you want to do this." Think a fundraiser to raise, collect clothes from people and ship it. But what happens if people grow out of their clothes? Are you going to constantly be there to supply them with new clothes? So, so what have you done now? Now you've introduced clothes that you've done one time. You've made them feel comfortable with wearing these nice clothes. And when they grow out of it, you're not there to continue it. So have you really created any good? You've not created any good. You've actually worsened things because you've taken him out of his comfort zone where he was perfectly fine however he was. You've sent him these nice clothes, and now you're not there to continue the nice clothes. So you've, you've not helped. And, and so those, those, are, um, you know, those are some of the, the challenges we've had. But I think you, you, you stick to it. Um, you stay committed in spite of all these problems. You think, and because we have a very academic approach, so we try, we're always figuring out ways in which how can we solve this. We're looking at case studies globally. We have these issues cropped elsewhere. And we look at contributing to the literature also. Um, so I think that has been helpful. And now with a cluster methodology we are doing, where we have, you know, f 50 plus communities in one cluster, we're able to try different interventions, learn from different communities and cross apply best practices. So you stay with it and, uh, um, and, and, and hopefully you gain some traction and, and you're able to implement some good. No, that's very interesting when you talk about um, best practice and so forth. And that seems to be, you know, talking to other social entrepreneurs, something that's terribly important, really, being able to conceptualize or identify good ways of working and ways that are effective uh, and environments in which they, they're effective and, and ideally really be able to transfer those to, to other organizations and other contexts. What's been your experience 
experience on that front. You talked about that's kind of obviously a model for you. Do you think that that's important? Is that something you see happening? And is that something that is growing? Yes, it is. You see, it, it, I, I think best practices is very important. Um, and we, again, because of our academic approach, we actually look at case studies globally. So we, we looked at projects that have been done in Kenya, Bangladesh, all over the place. And we, and we, we, we looked at them, we, we spoke to the professors who were involved in these evaluations, we tried to learn what worked and why, right? And then take those factors that worked and figure out how can you implement it here. And it, it, what's interesting is there are a lot of lessons I've actually learned from in quotes, the, this non-profit sector that I was able to actually carry on into the for-profit investments we've done under Golden Palm. One case in point was what we realized when we did the water infrastructure was we realized that if I compare the water infrastructure to the latrines, the latrines was incredibly successful, incredibly successful. And we were able to achieve 100%. It was successful for two reasons. One was, I think we localized our uh, education approach. So we went around and it was our partner, we came up with this idea where what we call the trigger method, in which our education campaign, we basically told them, and excuse my French, you are eating shit in their local language. And so when we went and told them that in their local language and told them that you're also making your kids eat, excuse my French, shit, people were repulsed by that. Right? Because the mothers want to know, they want to be good mothers, and they are repulsed by the idea that I'm feeding my child feces. Um, and, and so that trigger method worked very well, and people were like, no, I, you know, I don't want this to happen. And so they were already motivated to try and get involved in the latrine program. But the second thing that made it successful was people had a lot of investment in it, because we didn't give away latrines. People paid for it. We subsidized it, we provided some of the materials, but people, it was a heavy investment. They invested labor, they invested capital, they invested materials. And so we realized that when people have ownership and equity in any project, they are incentivized to, to take care of it and to guard it. And I translated that into some of the other um, for-profit projects I've worked in now. So now everyone in all the businesses I do, from the cleaner to the receptionist, all the way up to the manager of any of the businesses I'm involved in, I give everyone some form of equity in their business. How did you get them to participate and be willing to make this investment in the first place? It, it went with because what we were able to convince them through going, you know, working with them, doing the, as I mentioned, some of the test tubes and all, we're able to convince them that, look, this is a real issue and that you are harming your children by practicing open defecation. So the education campaign worked well, and people were very repulsed by that, knowing that, wow, I'm, I'm actually complicit in harming my children. And no one wants to be a bad parent, right? I think that's universal. Most parents um, universally want to do what's best for their children. So once we're able to, you know, educate um, um, the members of the community that, look, practicing open defecation harms your children, um, they wanted to make a change. And we said, look, this is the way to make a change. Um, th this is what it takes. We did it in phases. We worked with them. It took a while. Um, but slowly but surely, everyone got involved. And over, over the several years in which we're in the community, today we have 100% latrine coverage. Every single community, every single household in the community has a latrine.
Well, that's, that's a great success story. I'm just wondering, there seem to be many, many different organizations working on water projects um, in Africa. I mean, I don't know how many, but I mean, there are many, many in different aspects. Um, is there any structure or mechanism to transfer learnings, insights and expertise across these different companies and organizations? Yes, And so that's why, you see, what I love about how we approach things is because I'm I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman, um, I'm always thinking about scale and I'm always thinking about efficiencies and I'm always thinking about ways in which we can introduce market-based solutions and business models into the nonprofit sector to make it work better. So one of the things I've I've started doing now is I went, we were going around and I'm talking to the nonprofits who work in our same area. And I tell them, I said, look, if you drill a well and it costs you $5,000 to drill a well, right, why don't we, and so one of the things I've tried to do is to collect all this data and digitize it and say, look, why don't we all figure out what projects are we working on? And if it turns out that 10 of us are working on projects in the same area, instead of us on different days, each paying the guy $5,000 to go and drill 10 different wells, why don't we come together and tell him, look, why don't you just use two days to draw all wells? We'll give you all that business to you, this one person. And instead of $5,000, do it for 3000 Right. So, you know, you create efficiencies through scale. Um, so th- those, are some of, those are some of the things you thought about. Some of the other things we've looked at is, and some of the things we're currently discussing and thinking about is ways in which can we, can we create uh, business models out of it. So one of the things is, um, if we're going to be drilling wells, if we, maybe it makes sense to actually create a drilling company where we can use profits from that to, 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 to help solve some of these issues. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking to partners who are involved in some of the innovative technologies to figure out on the latrines side, is there any way in which we can take the byproduct, the waste, and can we convert it into energy? Right. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so looking at ways in which we can use, we can leverage technology, innovation, scale, um, to figure out what interesting business models can be introduced to, to, to make these projects more efficient, generate more revenues, um, and, and overall help with the bigger picture of solving this issue. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the the, the whole partnering, and uh, I think that is it seems to be a recurring theme and a very important one in terms of being effective as a social entrepreneur. I mean, and, and for nonprofits too, having social impact. What's been your experience about partnering? Is that something that you have got better at? Is it important for you? It absolutely is. At our, 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 from our very founding, everything we've done has been premised on world-class partnerships um, because we think that, that, you know, you have to figure out what you're best at, focus on that, and, and, and where others are, are better at, whatever it is they're better at, partner with them there. That way you're able to leverage your collective strengths and then the, the, the sum of the whole is greater than the individual pieces. So we're not, you know, we're not one of those organizations where we try to do it all ourselves or try to, you know, you know at the end of the day, you see, the, the problem, again, is you have to think about the big picture. And what's the big picture? We're trying to create a world where, you know, everyone has access to clean water, sanitation, and good hygiene. So who cares who does what? The end goal is what's important. And we actually, we don't want to exist. I really, it depresses me that we have to exist. It depresses me that, you know, we still live in a world today where 800 million people don't have clean water. 
I wish I don't exist for, from an organizational standpoint. And so the point is, let's figure out what's the most cost-effective, fastest, most efficient way to scale up all these things and solve this problem. And then we can move on and, and solve other issues in the world. But it's a problem that in 2014 should not exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you tell me, just changing gear now, your book, can you tell me a little bit about that and what you've learned? Because I know you've been traveling a lot and talking to a lot of people and really spending time on the ground. So look, the book has been, it's been, and I'm, you see, I'll tell you, the, the book, the idea for the book, okay, came out of a, a couple of things. One was I realized that we are not telling our stories in Africa. If I ask the average person anywhere in the world, can you mention some, you know, American entrepreneurs? They'll tell you, everyone knows your Zuckerberg and your Google guys. We all know all those people. Um, you know, if we go to the UK, we know your Bransons and others. You know, you, you go also most in India, we know who the Indian entrepreneurs are. China, you hear of your Tencent, you hear of your Alibaba. But, but the whole continent, Africa, when you ask, people don't know. We are not telling our stories. Right. And then I realized that the consequence of not telling our stories is that a lot of young people, because we look, we need entrepreneurship to transform our community and our, our continent. OK, Africa today, we have a billion people. We are, it's projected that I think by 2050 or so will be about two billion, almost all of which will be young people. So we, we have a blessing that we're going to have the youngest demographic in the planet. But it is a curse if we don't have the right jobs to engage these young people, it to create problems. So we need to make sure that we are well prepared to create the jobs for the future, for this the um, demographics that's about to come, these young people that's about to come. And how do you do that? The best way to do that is entrepreneurship. We need the entrepreneurs. We need people out there creating jobs, you know, creating businesses, starting enterprises. Now the issue is you talk to a lot of young people, and young people, you know, they want to either be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, very few people want to venture and take risk and to be entrepreneurs. And part of the reason is because they don't have role models. And so we wanted to, to tell the story of a new Africa, you know, of a new Africa in which young, there, there are young people out there today that are venturing out and that are taking advantage of the opportunities and are, are, are really just shaping a new Africa. And in telling their stories and in celebrating their stories, we are hoping to inspire young people on the continent and across the world to really take the mantle of entrepreneurship and, and transform their communities. So that was the vision behind it. I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship. I've been to, at this point, 30 countries on the continent. This year, I'll be going, I'll be traveling to another 14. And, and the goal is over the next couple of years, I actually want to go to all 54. So I've met some amazing entrepreneurs. Um, I'll, I'll share just uh, as a few stories one is in, in Nairobi, you see, what usually you have, um, when you think of entrepreneurs, most people, a lot of the entrepreneurs, most people have heard of, uh, you might hear of, you know, your, your HBS educated guys or your Oxford ed educated guys who've moved back and have created these enterprises. And that's great. I'm not knocking on that. We need all of that and we need to encourage more of that. But, but the, the entrepreneurs I've met are beyond just that, right? I met Samuel Mwangi, okay, in Nairobi. Samuel does not even have a high school diploma. He didn't even graduate from high school, right? He was working these odd jobs here and there, you know, um, working for an audio store, doing some electrical stuff, and he lost his job. After he lost his job, 
when it they say when it when it rains it pours. He 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 unexpectedly got his girlfriend pregnant. So now he's in trouble because he no longer has to cater. He's, he can barely cater for himself, and now he's going to have a family of three, right, to take care of. So in, he's walking out, he's stressed out, he's walking down the streets of Nairobi. In his desperation, he looks up and he sees this neon sign. And at the time, there were only two or three in all of Nairobi. And he thought to himself, ah, maybe I can make this. So he goes back, and, 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 and fortunately for him, the uh, Kenyan government had invested in ICT. So there was access to internet in Nairobi. And he, he goes online and starts reading about it and learning about it and teaches himself about it. And he enrolls in a free course, an online course for free with a state university in the U.S. and taught himself electronics and how to make it. So with his last bit of savings, he ordered the materials and started experimenting in his garage you know, getting shocked and doing all kinds of crazy things. And eventually, he was able to make a neon sign. I, I was there, I went to his garage, I saw the first one. I was very ugly, the first one he did. But at least it worked. Uh -huh. The signs of it worked. Um, and, and, and he went from there and was able to convince people. And today, he's the largest neon sign manufacturer in all of East Africa. He doesn't have a high school diploma. Right? And, you know, and, and, and there's so many of, it's not just him, there's so many of these entrepreneurs. There's, you know, Raphael and Tunde, Harvard Business School uh, friends who moved to Nigeria and saw that retail was disorganized and decided to create the Amazon of Nigeria, Jumia, right? There is uh, Gregory Roxon, who is, who is completely transforming um, the e-health landscape by digitizing how we prescribe, deliver, and monitor and authenticate the drugs on the continent, connecting all the different stakeholders. Um, it was incredible. I met so many incredible entrepreneurs, and it was a very good trip because I ended up investing in some of them. What about social entrepreneurs? I mean, in some senses, in some of the communities that you're talking about, creating jobs of any kind clearly has a major social impact. What about social businesses which try and do more and have other goals. What, what's your perspective on social entrepreneurs and what have you seen on the ground in, in Africa? Yeah, so, so I have a couple of thoughts there. First of all, I think that, um, I think that anyone going, to, with the exception of if you are just doing import-export, generally speaking, I think if you go to Africa and you start a business, you're already having social impact because you are going to create jobs, <laughs> right? Um, you're going to create jobs, you're going to generate tax revenues, you are, you are going to create opportunities. So anyone who goes out there, I tell people and my friends, I say, look, if you are going to donate money to stuff beyond the basics that I, I earlier articulated, which is, you know, your water, electricity, the basic building blocks that are needed, beyond that, I think instead of putting your money into a nonprofit, go out there and put it into, into a business. That's just, you know on the ground and that will be more sustainable, that will create jobs. So I, I don't, I think Africa is unique in that the supply demand imbalance in so many sectors is so massive that in, in most of the companies I met, all were having social impact, right? So Jumia, which is, you know, purely for profit, but they're having massive social impact. Look, they've grown their staff to a thousand people within the space of a year. They're organizing retail. That's social impact. That's having a real impact on the ground. And they are opening up e-commerce. So, so I, I push back on the idea that, um, you know, the businesses that are focused just on profit, um, 
you know, don't have a social impact. I think in Africa, there's real social impact from all the businesses. All that said, there are some entrepreneurs I met, lots of them, who are purely committed to social impact. Um, a number of them, there's Saran Kaba-Jones, who's also doing a lot of clean water stuff in Liberia. And she's specifically targeting the areas that no one targets, right? The areas that it takes forever, the hinterlands that everyone escapes. And she's been doing some remarkable work. In fact, they call her the water lady. Um, extraordinary work she's doing in Liberia. There's Tonulope in Nigeria, who is in a, I mean, I went to this place and I wept. It was, it's right f about just a few minutes drive from the wealthiest area in, in, in Lagos, Victoria Island. And, you know, just next to it, within proximity, it's called Dustbin Estate, right? And, and Dustbin, uh, a dustbin trash, is basically named after a trash can because the area is a swamp and they threw refuse there. So the refuse and all the rubbish basically covered the swamp water and people built a community on top of this refuse. Oh, I mean, if, if, if you go and visit that community and you'll be in tears, just the... The poverty and the uh, uh, the lack of social services there, and Tolunope went in there, and 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 it was remarkable what she said. She went in and has built a community center, and she said, "Not only am I going to provide social services here, but I am going to I'm going to create a leadership school, and I'm going to let these children believe that they can be the kings and queens of Nigeria." It's remarkable. I, I, I mean, it's just remarkable what she's doing there. And I went there, I visited, I, I you know, gave a lecture to the kids. And I'm talking to these kids, and these are kids who growing up in the worst of circumstances. And they are looking me in the eye and they are telling me, I'm going to be governor, I'm going to be mayor, I'm going to be minister. And I was amazed. I was amazed. And it's really incredible. I think more so than the hygiene pack she's giving them and the meals she's providing and the, you know, the, the educate, the best thing she's given to these people is hope and a vision that they can be the future leaders and they can shape their future. It's remarkable. This is very inspiring, your journey, meeting these people and seeing what they have done. When you set out, were there individuals that inspired you? I mean, you mentioned your family, the humanitarian context. Were there other people? You know, it, it, it's a, a number of different factors. Initially, um, and if you talk to uh, uh, most African young people, they'll tell you that growing up on the continent, you grow up and you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. Those are the three options your parents give you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so I was initially going to be a doctor. I actually came to Harvard pre-med. But what changed it for me was when I took an econ class by Gregory Mankiw, who had just come from the White House. He was chief economist in the Bush administration. And Professor Mankiw, um, you know, gave a lecture, or, you know, talking about the impact on, on economics and all those different things. And so that's when I first took a class. I first took his class and I was, I was enamored by the whole idea of how you could, we could basically develop the continent, um, you know, through the lens of economics. So that's, that's when I, I had a change and I moved, I transitioned from from medicine into economics, and then later um, added African studies, which was my primary. And so through that, I started reading books and learning, and I became inspired by entrepreneurs like Richard Branson. I became inspired by Africa's own Strive Masiwa. I became inspired 
by you know your your Bill Gates. I became inspired by all these entrepreneurs who had done remarkable things and had built world class companies. And and that's when I at that point I said you know I've had this burning thesis that Africa is going to be the next big thing. I will never forget when I was driving down the I was going to school. We were in traffic, and there was a magazine, The Economist. I, you know, we bought it. It had the cover of uh, um, Africa with a man in a bazooka, and it said the dark continent. And I thought to myself, why? I asked my father. I said, well, but why do they think we are dark? The whole continent, we are dark and hopeless. It was such a terrible article that basically just resigned us into hopelessness. And this same magazine, within a decade, has now released the cover saying Africa rising, with a child running around with a, a ra rainbow-colored kite. Right, but at the time that they sh they showed the Africa dark and hopeless continent, I saw a continent that was different. I saw a continent of a billion people, of a resilient people, of consumers that were opening up to a new reality. So my biggest inspiration is actually the African people. In my travels throughout all thirty countries, I'm inspired by African people. I'm inspired. I go everywhere I go, from the slums to the villages to the high rises. I'm inspired by, in spite of all the obstacles, people are innovating. People are figuring out how they can get about and make do. And that inspires me. The opportunities are there. Every, look, you just take a trip down to the continent. You'll be so inspired. There are so many problems, but each problem creates an opportunity to, to solve it and to build a business or an enterprise around that. So I, I'm excited. I'm fired up. Um, I've said I, from day one, that we are going to build a world-class billion-dollar company that's going to create jobs on the continent, that's going to support the local economy, that's going to create opportunities for young people, and that's going to help transform the social, economic, and political landscape on the continent. Very inspiring, Sangu. It's a great vision, and I wish you the very best in bringing that vision to reality. So thank you very much for sharing your vision and taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today one last thing your book how would people be able to get that yes yeah, so i will god willing i should be done um i'm hoping to be done by the end of the year and if and 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 you know for both the book and for reaching out to me if any i'm, I'm always available to speak with any entrepreneurs especially young people they can reach out to me via my website s D-E-L-L-E.com. That's S-Delhi, S-D-E-L-L-E.com. I'll have information when the book comes out there. I have my contact information there. People can always reach out to me. And uh, and I, I encourage people to take the mantle. Um, if people have ideas they want to discuss, you know, we're constantly looking for great ideas to fund. They should reach out. And, and my last uh, piece of advice to young people is uh, one of my favorite verses from Scripture which is 1 Timothy 4.12, which says, Do not let them look down on you because you are young, but set an example. Right. And so, um, too often, you have discriminated, you know, you are discriminated when you are young and you don't have gray hair in that part of the world. But I encourage all young people, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. Right. Set an example, move out there um, and, 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 and build Whatever you do, do it well and do it first class, world class. And eventually they'll be forced to pay attention to you. Excellent. Excellent. Very good advice. Thank you very much, Sango. Very nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. 
I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.